Good morning, guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, uh, before we jump in today, I actually just wanted to reiterate just a couple things. Uh, number one, again, just gratitude to you guys and to other like business owners that really uh, want to live out the gospel through their business. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's really what we think of when we talk about living on mission and seeing your whole life as, as, a, as an act of worship and service to God. So um, it's a great, great template, great job. Uh, second thing about the women's retreat, I'll just also tag onto that as well, the importance of that. Um, um, being a, a dad, when my kids were really young, my wife, they were kind of on a cadence of doing women's retreats every year. Back then, um, a lot of the leading women in the church that were overseeing the women's ministry, they had um, more time on their hands and uh, occasions and things to do, stuff like that. And so they were in a regular cadence of doing those. And uh, so every year, from the very time when my kids were really, really young, um, I, I was left at home. Or actually, I, I offered to uh, stay at home um, to watch the kids. And, and for sure, there were moments where it was tough. And I think there may have even been occasions where I'm calling my wife. And did I call my wife? Sometimes I'm just like, I need your help right now. But anyways, no, um, I, I learned. I learned how to be a, a dad uh, and realized uh, how much I actually appreciate my wife because how much she actually invests in that as well. So that, that could be a really unique opportunity for you men, to, uh, especially men that are married, to bless your spouses uh, by watching the kids over that weekend so they can get away and do that. And then the final thing is we're really excited about uh, going back to services. Um, as oftentimes typically happens when the fall hits, uh, things kind of change. We expand. New people are at it. Uh, families are kind of back within the cadence of uh, going to school and getting back into other rhythms of life. And uh, so it's a unique opportunity to kind of uh, plan and think about how uh, we are going to continue to grow as a church and be the family and community that God wants us to be. With that being said, there's all sorts of needs that happen on a Sunday morning. Um, As we kind of move on into the fall, uh, in a handful of weeks or so, we're going to be doing just kind of a special series like we typically do in the fall, just kind of on the vision and values of who we are and how we see God has uniquely called us as a church here on the Central Coast and beyond, and there'll be some things that we'll share and communicate that we see as far as vision that God's called us to as a church. Um, but one of those things that we are really excited about kind of paying special, more focused attention on for our church community is, is Sunday mornings and the importance of what happens here. Uh, if you think of it this way, every single week there's this uh, event where hundreds of people gather to hear the Scripture taught to worship together, to come with open hearts, to be transformed and reshaped by God and to learn from God. People are getting saved on Sunday mornings. People are rededicating their hearts and their lives. People are getting prayed for. And we have seen people healed even from uh, physical uh, maladies and uh, situations. And we've seen God is always doing things as we gather. And uh, so in order to do things well, it always requires really a a team of people that are committed to saying, we're here to serve this community. We're here to play our part, to be a part of this family. And we realize that Sunday mornings, especially Sunday mornings, uh, there's always going to be a variety of people that are here. Some uh, may may not even be Christians yet. So we just want you to learn and grow. And our hope is that in uh, hearing and seeing and observing and experiencing that you would have an encounter with the resurrected 
Jesus. Others of you, you are just kind of floating. You're checking out this church. You're kind of church shopping, as we oftentimes typically say. Uh, and, and you're just kind of not really super committed. You're just checking things out. That's fine, too. There's space for that. I mean, I would say if you are still, quote, unquote, checking things out three years from now, that's a problem. Um, something may need to change in your life because you got commitment issues, and that may actually be playing out in a variety of other areas in your life, like relationships and jobs and so on and so forth. But that's a whole other sermon, which I'll give it another time. But the point that I'd make is that there's the, the probably the vast majority of you guys uh, would be people that would say, this is my church, this is my family, uh, these are my people that I worship with, I, I, uh, I, I commit myself to, um, and I grow from, and I call this my church. When people ask me, where do you go to church? What's your church family? And you say, Calvary Slow. Uh, to you, those of you, um, I, I would strongly encourage you to think about how are you serving and committing your time and your energy to Jesus within this community? It's a variety of different ways. There's not one monolithic way to do this across the board. There's a variety of ways. There's always needs that we have. One of the ways that we see a very significant need, especially on Sunday mornings, is children's ministry, as we've communicated uh, often. Because there's a lot of children back there. And there's a lot of families that come and drop off those children. And... Uh, um, and there's occasions why, that's one of the reasons why we want to uh, have and bring about as many people that can be raised up. So the, the, the underlying reality behind all of this, of uh, what we do together as a family, is discipleship. Everything that we do is with this main focus that we want to be disciples, followers of Jesus. So we're always asking ourselves, what does it look like to truly embody uh, a life that follows Jesus in every area of our, our lives, whether it be you own a business, whether it be you go to school, whether it be you are involved in children's ministry, what, whatever it looks like, that's what we're always asking the big question. It's about being disciples, followers, apprentices, if you would, of Jesus. So our challenge to you is always to think about how is God calling me to step out of the boat, using the metaphor, to walk upon the water, things that look impossible to you in that moment. Yet, as you do so, Jesus creates a way. And you grow. Others are blessed. And faith in Christ begins to uh, become this combustible reality. People are transformed by the gospel. So that's what we're always challenging you, encouraging you to think about. I love hearing stories of people take those bold steps of faith. So keep that up. You guys are an amazing community of people. Keep asking God but especially uh, within that area of children's ministry. It's a huge need that we have. It's a huge way in which uh, you can be discipled and raised up and trained up in some very unique ways to follow Jesus and to bless a lot of people. So there you go. We will have some people out in the little informational area um, that you can pick up um, applications or fill out an application, and we've tried to make the process as easy for you as can be. Um, So check that out. Anyways. Why don't we open our Bibles now to the book of uh, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 is what we're going to be looking at. We've been looking at this uh, book for quite a while. And uh, we're actually coming to the end of it, believe it or not. And uh, we're going to be moving on to some other things. And uh, excited about what God has in store for us uh, in the months to come. So Acts chapter 20. I'm going to give a really quick kind of summary uh, oftentimes what we do before we jump into a passage is we'll read the entirety of the passage. Uh, I'm not going to actually do that this morning uh, because we'll be reading through the entire passage as we just go through it 
word by word, verse by verse, whatnot, and we'll be making comments as we go through it. Before we, but before we jump in, as I was thinking about and kind of reading through and asking God, like, what's happening in this passage, um, there's a couple things that I thought I'd point out, um, and that is some ways kind of encapsulated in the title. So the title is this. It's kind of a long title, but just listen to it. It's Flourishing Communities of Jesus People. That's, that's the title. Flourishing Communities of Jesus People. So you might be like, what in the world does that mean? Glad you asked. The idea of a flourishing community of Jesus people is, I believe, what exactly is happening in this passage that we'll be reading. It really kind of encapsulates what Paul the Apostle uh, was going around doing. So in short, I'll just kind of summarize. I think I have a little bullet point slide that kind of summarizes this. So I see Paul the Apostle up until this point in the book of Acts doing two things. Number one, we see that Paul went around planting churches which were basically these multi-ethnic, multicultural communities of Jesus' people. So Paul went around. That was his whole mission. That was his point. Uh, he went into these areas that were non-Jewish, uh, into these areas that were largely uh, Greek or Gentile or pagan, and he would uh, share the gospel with people. He'd share with them about the love of God and the forgiveness of God that was offered through Jesus. And people were beginning to form these communities that were multi-ethnic. They were made up in comprised of both male and female, which is uh, uh, something that was familiar to, or unfamiliar, I should say, in that day and age. Uh, these were multi-ethnic, meaning they were comprised of multi-ethnicities, both Jews and Gentiles, coming together, not with uh, any form of hatred or separation, but actually coming together, uh, loving one another, serving one another. This is exactly what Paul did. So you'd imagine... As Paul went around, he would plant these churches. In some cases, Paul would only remain for a couple weeks in these cities, and then he would leave. Uh, there were other times where Paul would stay for a little bit longer, maybe months, in some cases, years. Uh, but at some point, Paul seemed to be this guy that was, I would kind of describe him as like an entrepreneur for Jesus. Like he went around, rather than planting or making uh, businesses or franchises, he planted churches. Paul was what we would call an apostle. He was sent out by God to go do a very specific task. In this case, was to plant these communities that we would call churches and all sorts of communities uh, throughout the Roman Empire. But the other thing that I would say to the flip side of all this is that Paul wanted to ensure that these communities of Jesus' people would last. And not just last, but actually flourish. So there's, there's, there's an aim that says, I just want these things to survive. I don't think Paul's aim was just survival. I think Paul really had intended that these communities that he invested his life in, his time, his energy, money in, uh, that they wouldn't just simply last or survive, you know, another five years, 10 years, 30 years, but they would actually flourish, that they would actually have an impact upon that city and society and culture and surrounding societies at large around that for generations to come. So let me put it in this way. Um, almost 23 years ago, about almost 24 years ago, my wife and I moved to San Luis Obispo to do exactly what Paul did, to plant a church. We had no idea really what we were doing, um, had no training, no idea exactly what lay ahead. All I knew is that God had a call upon our lives to come up and to basically use what we had been given, which at that point was we didn't have any children, so we had a lot of extra time on our hand. And we had a small apartment. It was like 700 square feet downtown San Luis Obispo. And so we had some time on our hands. We had an apartment uh, we knew how to cook, so basically we took what we had, which was an apartment and food, and we just went around inviting people, come over to our house, 
and I wanted to teach the Bible, and that was my passion. That's my calling. My passion and calling for 25 years almost has been the same. It's never changed. It's to teach the Bible. It's to disciple, uh, especially men. It's always been my disciple. My desire is to do that, disciple men and teach the Bible. So uh, we basically took what we had, and we just opened our house, and which led eventually to, to this, which then, you know, God began to bless and do all sorts of great and cool and amazing things, which we still sit back in amazement that I still get this incredible opportunity to do this. Now, Paul the Apostle, he would go into a community and for the most part would leave after a while. Me, guys like me, uh, I just stayed. I, had, I have no reason to leave. I have no desire to leave. And I, I love this city. Um, other church planters in the Bible, for the most part, may have stayed, but uh, there seems to have been a pattern, at least in the life of Paul, to go into an area, plant a church, and then leave and to go do the same thing in uh, the subsequent uh, cities that Paul would then find himself traveling into. So again, uh, like in my case, I want to make sure that the time and energy and, and money and sweat and tears that, that I've invested of my life here last. And I'm not talking about an institution. I'm not necessarily talking about uh, uh, possessions and goods, because technically, as a church, we don't have anything. We don't own this building. Uh, we do own the chairs, so there we go. <laughs> th- th- those are ours. Uh, we, we do own the sound system. We don't have any debt. But as far as, like, property and things of that nature, but really, at the end of the day, I want to ensure the most valuable reality of what we are and who we are as a church community is not possessions. It's not money. It's you guys. It's people. Our number one desire is that you guys who have met and encountered the resurrected Jesus would remain faithful to him, not just for the next five months, but for the next 50 years of your life. I'll give you an example. I was just talking with a gal this, earlier this past week who actually is one of our Bible studies that's really growing and doing pretty amazing. So as I was chatting with her, and just, uh, I was super encouraged because I asked her, just like, so, so when did you become a Christian? And, and tell me a little bit about that. She goes, I got saved here. Like, really? You got saved here? She goes, yeah, totally. It's, I got, someone invited me in, uh, and I got involved in a Bible study. I just started coming to church on Sunday mornings. I heard the gospel. I got radically saved, and then I got involved in this Bible study. And as I got involved in this Bible study, I had this desire to want to begin to teach and get involved. And so now I'm leading this Bible study. I'm like, look, look at this. This is amazing. I, I just, when I was talking with her, I just said, this is so cool because you are, you are the fruit of what God's doing in this church. Like, this is so awesome. Like, you are now discipling other people. You're training them to follow Jesus. You're speaking into them every single week. And again, I don't know how long she's been, maybe six or seven years. So think about that. In six or seven years, maybe even shorter, she went from totally being far from God to now today giving the sum total of her energy and life and time and money to serving Jesus, to discipling and training other young gals in the faith. It's amazing. Like that, to me, that's, that's my vision for ultimately 50 years from now, 100 years from now, when I'm long and gone from this place, you know, maybe dead. My hope is that at least what remains is a strong, driving passion for Jesus because that's what's important. And the flip side of it is just think about this. How many of you have known people over the years who at one point have been on fire for Jesus and passion for Jesus lit up for Jesus, woke to Jesus. Their lives have been transformed by Jesus. But fast forward six months, six years or whatever, they're nowhere. They're not walking with Jesus today. 
the passion that was once there, the excitement that was once there, part of their life, it's gone. It's not there anymore. What happened? How does that take place? What's the pathway to that? How does drift take place in our hearts and our lives? That's not necessarily the, the question I'm going to try to tackle this morning, but the bigger thing that I think Paul is up to here is he's trying to figure out how can we, how can those whom God has called me to be a part of, train up a community of people so that this work that I invested in will remain for generations to come. This seems to be what Luke is telling us the story in terms of narration about what's happening in the life of the Apostle Paul. So with that being said, I want to basically just take a look at a handful of things. I'll kind of sketch out for you some of the ideas or the movements that I see that are happening throughout the passage here. And then we'll kind of circle back and just read through them uh, verse by verse. And then we'll make our way to the end or see how far we get along in this today. So one of the things that I notice in terms of this, that flourishing communities of Jesus, Jesus people will always have, number one, we'll look at this first of all, servant leaders that are known for their character. I'll come back to this. Uh, second thing we'll take a look at uh, is that these types of communities will have instruction and proclamation of the whole counsel of God, whatever that is, we'll come back to that. We will also see that these types of communities have admonitions and warnings that are oftentimes accompany uh, the teaching and instruction times, uh, times of communication and pastoring. Uh, another thing that we see is that they will have this entrustment to God's grace, these communities. They will have a, a radical awareness of this, if you want to put it this way, God's scandalous grace. Because that's what it is. It's scandalous. That's the type of grace that God has, and he just puts on display. It's shocking. That's the type of grace it is. Uh, these types of communities live in this awareness of this grace. When communities begin to uh, lose sight of this sense of radical, scandalous, amazing, shocking grace, they drift. They drift into legalism. They drift into despair. They drift. They drift from God's intention. Um, we also see that they will have a sense of generosity amongst their leaders and amongst their people. This overwhelming sense where we just want to do something meaningful with our life, with our money, with our time, with our energy. It's this radical culture of generosity. And finally, uh, we'll see that there's a sense of compassion and relational commitment to each other. So with that, let's circle back and begin to jump into the passage. We'll just read verse by verse. We'll pick it up at around uh, where we actually where we left off last week, which is verse 27. And uh, we'll see how far we get through this. And uh, if we run out of time, we'll pick it up next week. So let's jump in and begin to take a look at this. So number one, we see in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Again, we left off on this passage last week. So let's start in with this. So Paul says, as he's sitting down with this group of people, he says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you. Stop. So I'm going to ask the question of the text. Like, who is the you? Who is Paul talking to? Who's Paul referring to? Well, you have to go back a little bit into the earlier portion of the chapter around verse 17. So I want you to look back there, verse 17. This tells us who Paul is talking to. It says in verse uh, 17, chapter 20, Paul then called the elders of the church to come. So again, another question. Who in the world are these elders? Who are these people? Where do they come from? How do they get onto the map of Luke's uh, narration and Luke's storyline? So that's the question I want to think about. So the word that's actually used there for elder... Um, is a word that's used interchangeably, actually, throughout the rest of the New Testament. So you may have heard of a word called episkopos, another one called prosbyterios. Uh, so we get English words from those. Uh, uh, episkopos is, we get the English word uh, bishop. Uh, the word prosbyterios, we get the word presbytery 
from. There's another word that's actually used that's kind of interchangeable with this. We actually get the uh, English word shepherd, which uh, how many know that the actual word pastor actually comes from the word shepherd? It's the same word, same word. So these three phrases, uh, three words, are all actually interchangeable, and they describe the same role. So what, uh, it wouldn't have been until maybe a hundred or a couple hundred years or so later where the church became uh, sort of more institutionalized. And as the church grew uh, in age, uh, it became more uh, organized, if you want to put it that way. An organization is not bad. Over-organization can oftentimes lead to the sense of institutionalization, which is exactly what happened with the church. It became institutionalized. So what you had basically was a creation of hierarchies. You had bishops that, were, that came. Again, this is not at all what, how, how Luke intends to use this word. Uh, bishops would come at some point in history to become overseers over a region. Um, and you would have kind of the formation of certain ideas around these particular words. But the way that you, Luke uses these words in its original context is to basically describe a role or an office. And the ideas behind it is that whoever these people are, whoever these men are that Paul is uh, connected with and he's about to uh, communicate to, these are, the best way I would describe them, these are the servant leaders in those communities of Jesus' people. So again, asking questions of the text, who in the world are these people and what is their role and what are they supposed to be doing and why are they here? So let's, let's go on. Let's jump ahead if you want. You can turn if you'd like to the book of Ephesians Chapter 4, I got a handful of verses, so you guys should have your Bible ready, or I think we might even have them up on the slides. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 11, I'm going to read down to about verse 15. Just listen. He says this, these are the gifts that Jesus gave the church. And then he's going to begin to describe. So I want you to think about uh, what he's about to unpack, what Paul is about to describe, as being gifts from Jesus to these community of Jesus people. So if you want to personalize this, if you are a follower of Jesus, you belong to the church, you are a follower of God, um, what Jesus does, because he loves you, he gives you leaders in the church that will do something for you. And we'll try to understand what that is in just a moment. But here's what he goes on to say. These are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, what oftentimes people describe as fivefold ministry, Five particular roles, five particular uh, groupings or uh, roles that are going to be uh, active within the church. Um, for the purpose, he goes on to say, their responsibility. So again, ears should perk. What's the job? What's the responsibility of those overseeing leaders, pastors, teachers, apostles? He goes on to say, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church. Some of your translations might say uh, their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So here's what oftentimes happens. I think especially in today's modern culture when we think about church. We think about church as basically being a series of professionals. The church, staffs, houses uh, is basically the purveyors of, the creators of a a professional class of Christian uh, that their job is to basically do all the work in the ministry. So as a Christian, your job is to show up at church on a Sunday morning and to learn. So what's happened, for the most part, I would say, and I would even say that this is a really super unhealthy trend, not just simply in American Christianity, but I would say in Christianity in general, is that the culture has basically become backwards. 
And what has happened is there's sort of been this cultivation that Christians in general are nothing more than consumers. Their job is to show up and do nothing but consume a great sermon. So what we've done is we've created the sermonizers, the pastors, the preachers, whoever they are, into this class of celebrity. And so then what Christians do is they show up and they, they basically have this opportunity to either be fed or to not be fed based upon the quality of the sermon of the guy that's preaching or the person that's talking. And so what happens is it creates this context where all sorts, all sorts of things happen. Sometimes people will say, I don't like that church. I don't get fed there. I don't like the sermons. They're too long. They're too short. They're not meaty enough. It's too milk. It's not enough uh, meat. And there's all these forms of classifications that we have to rank and rate sermons or messages from these pastors. And really it fits this paradigm of I'm a consumer My job is to rank and rate the message based upon whether or not it, quote, unquote, feeds me. You guys following? You guys doing okay? Anybody asleep? Put your hand down. The point that I make as we keep going, as we think about this, that this is a problem within the the modern church. Because what Paul is basically saying, that's not how the church is to be set. That Jesus is so in love with his church. He loves you guys. He wants to see you grow and flourish and to move on into your development and your maturity as a disciple of Jesus because he loves you so much that Jesus creates leaders, servant leaders, that will lay their life down to teach you, to feed you, to pray with you, to cry with you, to weep with you, to show compassion towards you, to be there as much as they're capable or able of being there to help shepherd and coach and guide and disciple you along the way. So that you can do the works of ministry. So that you, as you become a fully devoted disciple of Jesus, you will be the one maturing and growing and teaching and instructing other people. Does that make sense? You guys following? Okay. So, I'm going to keep reading. Verse 13, it says this in Ephesians chapter 4. It says, this will continue until we come to such unity of our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Verse 14, he says, then we will no longer be immature like children. So, again, asking questions of the text, what does immature like children mean? What in the world is Paul talking about here? What does it mean to be an immature uh, child in the faith? Paul answers that as we keep on reading. He says this, So that we won't be tossed and blown about with every wind of new teaching, every novel idea. So how can you determine, I'll keep reading, I'll come back. Uh, We will not, so that we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies that are so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way to be more like Christ. So think about it this way. If you've ever been somebody or you know somebody that is constantly overtaken by every new fad and every novel idea that sounds great, that's new, and at some point is just going to simply phase out, that is definition of somebody that is literally being captivated by the latest there, uh, amazed by the greatest there, and dazzled by the spectacular over there, constantly moving around, constantly shuffling, never satisfied, always in this constant status of needing something different, needing something new. That is, by definition, what Paul would say. It's like a child. It's like a child. 
God's aim is that you would not... Now, childlikeness is how Jesus calls us to enter into the kingdom. A child in the faith is okay if you are new in the faith. If you are old in the faith, meaning you've been a Christian for a lengthy period of time, you've read scripture for a long period of time, and you are still operating under same child attitudes, what Paul would say is there's something hindering, something not quite right in how you are uh, bringing in and imbibing the gospel reality. You're, you're, You're wandering like a child. And Paul would say, what you need to do is to recognize that God gives gifts to the body so that you can become fully mature, growing, stable, strong, able to stand on your own two feet. If you're still needing to be fed, spoon-fed. So in other words, let me put it this way in modern context. If you're somebody that's been a Christian for 30 years or 20 years or 15 years and you're like, I still need somebody to feed me, then that is problematic. We should be learning to feed ourselves and grow. So here's the point that I think we continue to go on to see within the passage uh, as I continue to wrap this little section up. That... uh, Paul says in verse 15, instead, we should speak the truth in love, growing in every way to be more like Jesus. That's the aim, to be more like Jesus. So let me, let me pause real quick and just ask you, how's that coming along for you? How is Christ's likeness being formed in you, in your life? People that are closest to you, um, what would happen if you were to ask them, right? Whether it be a spouse or a roommate or a mom or a dad or someone that knows you really, really well. Um, what would happen if you were to ask them, hey, listen, I want true, honest feedback. I, I love Jesus. My hope is to continue to be conformed in the likeness of Jesus. Um, how, how am I doing? How am I doing compared to last year? How am I doing compared to three years ago or 10 years ago? How am I doing? Because I truly want to be conformed, transformed into the image of Jesus. So uh, one final question I want to ask before we move on is what was Paul's process for leadership development? So for me as a pastor, um, when, I, when I planted the church, as I mentioned, I didn't have any really training at all. Sometimes people will ask, like, what seminary did you go to? I didn't go to seminary. I didn't even go to college. Like, I barely, I barely graduated high school. I'm totally honest. I think I had like a 1.8. That's pretty bad, right? 1.8. Anyways, I, I mean, I mean, I barely graduated high school. And yet, after high school, I was just like, I love Jesus. I'm going to serve Jesus. I have no idea what that looks like. I get married at age 20, and both my wife and I are like, we know God's called us to ministry. We have no idea what that's going to look like. Maybe God's calling us to San Luis Obispo. Let's move. Let's go plant a church. Let's go do something great for Jesus. So we had no idea what we were doing. Still have really no idea what we're doing. I've learned some things. I've learned what not to do. So ask me uh, what failures to avoid. I'd be happy to talk with you for a long time about that. But the point of the matter is, is... Uh, what we see is that, that God just basically uses anybody. And what we see with regard to that, for me, as I was planting the church, I realized as God was bringing blessing and this church was growing, there were things I needed to recognize that needed to be developed and leaders that needed to be raised up. So for me as a church planter, as a church leader, uh, one that's tasked with the responsibility by Jesus to care for the needs of people's souls and their lives and their hearts and the fragileness of their lives. Um, these are really pertinent questions to me. And unfortunate, unfortunately, the Bible does not give a whole lot of detail on this. So I'll give you a couple examples of this. So, for example, in this one, what was the process of church uh, leadership uh, development that Paul had employed? Um, so, for example, Acts chapter 14, verse 21 through 23, I'll just read it, says this. After preaching the good news of the gospel in Derby and making many disciples... 
uh, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and Pisidia. So these uh, non-Jewish regions which Paul was planting churches uh, and that each of these areas, Paul created these communities of Jesus' people. Verse 22, it says, uh, when they strengthened the believers, they encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 23, this is, Paul and Barnabas also then appointed elders in each church. So there's that word, elder. Paul and Barnabas, these guys actually appointed elders. Um, how did they do that? It doesn't tell us. It says with, well, I mean, what it does tell us is just standardized ideas of they prayed and they fasted, and then they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So what we see is the only bit of process that we are left with, at least in this particular context, of how Paul raised up leaders in the church context was him and Barnabas appointed these guys. So in other words, this means that the church didn't vote. The overall group and community of people didn't vote. And I realize in some church congregations, they'll vote. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just simply saying, again, there's a lot of data and a lot of details that are missing from the process of how, the protocol. That's all I'm saying. Most Church scholars would all agree with this, that there's not a lot of data. data. And the one thing I would even say about this passage right here, the question, again, asking questions of the text, text, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is this a passage in which somebody is actually prescribing, hey, follow this protocol in order to accomplish this end? Or is this just simply a narratival description? Just a description. It's not a prescription. It's not simply Luke saying, hey, here's the protocol. Here's how they did this. This was the process. Follow this process every time. We don't, we don't really know. So for us as a church, it's pretty much how we have appointed elders and leaders over this church is by way of appointment, which means at some point early on, it was a responsibility on my behalf, which is scary for me, actually, as a young guy leading a church that I didn't really have much understanding or information about um, and how to do all this type of stuff. At some point, that process needed to begin. So where we're at today is we try to operate according to the same types of principles by way of appointment. We pray, we fast, we seek God. We try to understand a little bit about their character, which leads me to the last thing, and I'll kind of move on and wrap this up. Um, What The other element that we do get is, uh, I'll actually show you a little pie chart. Is that cool? Pie chart. Anybody like charts? So what we do get is in the New Testament, Paul actually writes a little bit about the quality of person that should be brought into this type of leadership role. Again, he uses the word elder. He says these are basically the qualifications of an elder or an episcopus or or a bishop or a leader of the church. And again, the types of hierarchical definitions that we oftentimes think about them. Think maybe Catholic church or think maybe uh, Orthodox type church. Those, those were not part of Paul's thinking. These were just leaders, servant leaders that loved Jesus, loved the people, devoted their, soul, their souls, their hearts, their money, their time, their energy to God entirely to serving the people of God. And then he goes on to say, here's some of the ways in which to identify the type of people they are. So um, on the, let's see, your left-hand side is basically the a composite of uh, Titus 1.6, it's 7.1, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, 1 Timothy 3.2, and uh, over to the right is another element. So I'm not sure if this percentage is actually accurate, but it's somewhere around there, okay? So actually, after I counted these up, I realized I think it might be 17 
um, elements in all and only one of them. So any of you that are math people want to give me a more accurate account of this, that'd be awesome. Um, But at the end of the day, here's what I want to point out. The overwhelming majority of things which qualify somebody to be a leader in the church, you ready for this, have absolutely nothing to do with the ability of that person. Just pause and think about that. Has nothing to do with the charisma of that person. Has nothing to do with their ability to talk, speak, create a sermon, arouse a crowd, gather a large community of people. Has absolutely nothing to do with that. One small indicator is that they, they should have the ability to teach. The rest of it, every other last element, has to do with the character of that person. Think about this. How much of the celebrity culture in American Christianity is based upon that one small, I don't even, again, any percentages you guys are coming up with? What is it? Is that what it is? Four and a half. I don't know how to do these types of, remember I told you I graduated with a 1.8. So, um, (laughs) four and a half percent. So what that means is four and a half percent that the vast majority of the way we oftentimes think, like we determine how am I going to decide what church to go to? We focus all of our energy upon 4%. That person's ability to teach. And Paul says, no, no, the whole game rises or falls. The whole ministry, the whole thing rises and falls on that person's character. And Paul says, make sure that this person is a person of character. So going back, I would say this, is that one of the ways to create these flourishing communities of Jesus' people that last is by first and foremost ensuring that the servant leaders are known for the character. Number one. That's the first thing. All right, let's jump on into the next one. And uh, maybe we'll wrap it up with this. Is that Paul goes on to say is that they, secondly, would also have this ability whereby they instruct and proclaim what he describes as the whole counsel of God. So I'm just using Paul's words. I'll try to unpack what I think Paul means in just a second here. So take a look at the rest of verse 27. He says this, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So this phrase, whole counsel of God, whatever this is, we'll look at it in a second. Paul says, it's so important, whatever it is, I did not shrink back. I didn't stop. I didn't pull away. I didn't, like, give you bits and pieces. I did not pull back from giving you the whole counsel of God. It was, whatever it is, it's that important. Paul is basically saying, so therefore, as I leave, as I'm never going to see you again, you guys, you servant leaders who are, have this vested interest in these people to whom God has called you, that Jesus has gifted you over, ensure that in the future you keep unpacking for them this whole counsel of God, whatever that is. So let's ask the question, what is the whole counsel of God? That phrase is actually the only place whole counsel of God that, that appears really in the New Testament. So we have to think about the composite parts of this. So for example, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 says this. In him, that's Jesus, uh, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that word counsel, the phrase counsel of his will, is the closest thing we have to this whole idea of the counsel of God. And so Paul was basically just talking about, in short, if you want to kind of think about a more summarized version, like what is the whole counsel of God? I think in short, it's Paul's way of basically saying the gospel, the good news that God was in Jesus, not destroying or crushing or abandoning this world and or you in your brokenness or your sin, but that God 
who is driven and motivated by a heart of love and compassion for you in your brokenness and even in your rebellion has sought you out to rescue you. Tim Keller kind of puts something, puts it this way in some way. He says, you know, you, you are far more sinful than you ever even imagined, but far more loved than you can ever even dream of. And that's totally my paraphrase. But the idea is that you are definitely, we are broken people, yet God's love is greater than our brokenness and our sin. He's not put off by it. In fact, he sends his son into this world to do something about our sinfulness and our brokenness, to rescue us. This has always been God's plan from the very beginning to undo the evil and the sin and the brokenness that we are bound by. You realize how good a news that is? You know what that means for you? It means that the very sins and vices and fears and rebellions that you find yourself embroiled in or enslaved by, Jesus can set you free from. Like, you, you don't have to remain a slave to those things. The sense of regret, the sense of defilement, the sense of feeling so lost and broken. There is a path to be made that's seen. There's a thing that we would call home. That Jesus creates this path to home. That he is the good news. And Paul is saying, that I did not cease to bring to you guys the whole counsel of God. One other thing is that in Luke chapter 7, verse 30, he says this. That the Pharisees... They actually rejected the purposes of God. So the phrase, at least a portion of the phrase, actually appears in this very thing. So whatever the whole counsel of God is, whatever the counsel of God's will or God's mind is, it says that the religious leaders actually rejected it. They turned their heart against it. So, again, in summary, to think about this, that flourishing communities of Jesus' people, the way that they will ensure that they remain in future generations, the way that you will ensure that your faith and your walk with Jesus continues is, one, I think the importance of recognizing that God provides leaders in your life to teach you, to equip you, to instruct you in the ways of God. Secondly, that you would submit your heart entirely to the good news, the gospel, and be fed regularly and consistently on that. And that the teachers that are in your life would be regularly, frequently keeping the message focused on Jesus. That's the whole point. If we ever drift from that, then we've drifted from everything. That's the most essential thing. That's the big E on the I chart. That if we miss that, we miss everything. That's the whole point. So with that being said, I think it's important I'll wrap it up with some thoughts here. Because I think there is a tendency to some degree. Uh, there's a, one thing with regard to the phrase, the whole counsel of God. I've heard in some circles... Uh, some kind of relate the concept of the whole counsel of God to this idea of teaching the Bible verse by verse, word by word, chapter by chapter. That that is what it means to teach the whole counsel of God. That if you don't teach the Bible word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, book by book, then somehow you are not teaching the whole counsel of God. Now again, that sounds great, but you have to ask, is that how Paul meant it? Is that what Paul intended when he used the phrase the whole counsel of God? Well, for one, it can't be, absolutely can't be. Paul didn't have the whole Bible. He had the whole Old Testament, without question. He had what we would call the Torah. He didn't have the New Testament. In fact, Paul was actually like writing the New Testament, which is kind of cool. But it wasn't done yet. It wasn't completed. So the idea of literally taking a book by book, chapter by chapter, word by word, teaching it expositionally on a Sunday, line by line, that, is, that cannot at all be what Paul had intended in his mind. So we have to ask ourselves, what was Paul's intent? And that's why I go back to saying, I think what Paul's intent was, the big main focus is the gospel. Is that being preached? 
Is Jesus what's being heard consistently over and over on repeat again and again? Because that's what Paul is saying. I did not cease to keep focusing on Jesus, the gospel, the good news. But he uses the phrase, the whole counsel of God. So with that being said, I think it's an important thing. Because again, if we have a mindset that we may or may not even really be aware of, that basically treats church more like a consumer. Meaning, I'm here to be fed. My job is to, 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 to feast off of the teaching of the pastor and rank it or rate it based upon his performance and how good. Then what happens is we create the system. And I think what the system basically does, at some point it fails. And when it fails, it will fail you. So when we live in such a context that basically says, my whole job as a Christian is to be a consumer, to feast on the music, to feast upon the teaching, and what will happen is that will run its cycle. And what typically takes place, I hear from people all the time, is a narrative that goes something like this. Well, I'm not getting fed any longer. I'm not getting fed from the pastor. I'm not getting fed at this church or fed from this context. Now, that being said, in some cases... What, the, the, I, I always love to ask the question, like, what, what does that mean? I'd love to kind of hear you express a little bit further. What does it mean to not be fed? And sometimes what you might hear, to some degree, might be at some point they were being fed, they were growing, but over the course of months or maybe years or whatever, somewhere along the line, they might say, I'm, I'm just no longer getting fed by the particular pastor. Now, that being explained or said, I think it's important to think about a couple things with regard to this. Number one, are there good pastors who faithfully teach the Bible, faithfully teach Scripture, faithfully communicate the gospel, and are there pastors that faithfully don't or, uh, or just simply use the pulpit as a means to expound their celebrity status or just uh, do talking points? Of course, of course. There were people like that in Paul's day. There are definitely people uh, throughout history. There's definitely people like that today. There will be people like that in the future. But here's the point. In, in my honest uh, observation, at least most of the pastors that I know, and I meet with almost all of them on the Central Coast monthly, and we pray with each other, we love each other, we cry with each other, we serve one another, we help each other. I'm confident, though, though all of us pastors here on the Central Coast, evangelical pastors, we all have a passion for Jesus, all have a desire for the gospel. We all have a variety of methods and ways and means by which we do that. Some pastors are more kind of topical. They don't necessarily teach an entire book of the Bible like we typically do on a Sunday morning. They may be more focused on, you know, six weeks of talking about something. Yet at the very core of their heart, I know these guys love Jesus. They promote Jesus. They preach the gospel. It's just a different method. I wouldn't say that they're a bad teacher. I would just simply say it's a different style. It's a different style of communicating truth. Because if you want to push this even further... You can ask the question, how good of a Bible expositor was Jesus? I mean, he, he taught a lot of stories. Jesus would be like, I want to tell a story about a guy who sowed seed. Like, what Bible verse was that again, Jesus? Well, that's right. There was none. He's just telling stories. And he's always linking it back to these grand truths of God. But here's the point, going back to this. I think it's important to just recognize that there are, I think, some hindrances that I've observed over the years that people might kind of get to a place of saying, I'm not being fed. Now, in some cases, like I said, that may genuinely actually be the case. That may be the pastor is no longer teaching scripture. It's not focused on God. The gospel is not being preached. Jesus is maybe not even within the context of that message. 
And, and yeah, you, you got you to think about that. Maybe, uh, like, for example, uh, I, I heard a message a while back, and the word Jesus, like, Jesus never even actually appeared in the sermon, which is, like, odd. It's just Jesus never even came up. So the point that I would make is this, is that, yes, the gospel, yes, Jesus is the central point of what Paul would say, this is the whole counsel of God. So I think there's a handful of things that we can think about that could oftentimes be hindrances to allowing us to actually receive from God's hand his word, the gospel. Uh, number one, hardness of heart. That's pretty clear. Scripture kind of points it out. It's what happened with the Pharisees. They had a hardened heart, so they were not able to actually receive from Jesus. In fact, Jesus even says to them, you guys search the scriptures. Jesus can literally say to these guys, you guys are really, really good at Bible study, but you've completely missed the whole point of the Bible study. You've missed me because your hearts are hard. The second thing I think is to focus on uh, the format and method and our style. Or maybe even said to overfocus on a format, method, and style. To look at a format or a method and style, be like, well, this format, method, and style is not like the pastor, the teacher, or the person that I heard teach the Bible from my past church. Or the format, the method, and style that I particularly resonate with. Now, fact is, do we all resonate with different pastors and teachers and leaders? Of course we do. I mean, we all have people that we kind of resonate with more than others. That's, that's totally fine. But again, is that a question of being faithful to the whole counsel of God? Maybe, maybe not. But is it more so having to do with method and style? Probably more method and style. But be careful about how you talk about others that are faithful to Jesus, and yet they might not have a method or style that might resonate with you. So the point is, is that I think if someone were to focus on method, format, and style, that's also a hindrance. The second or third thing is to focus on the one who delivers the message. If and when they fail to live up to certain expectations, you'll become disenchanted and offended. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing, is that I've actually heard, uh, again, all my good friends and pastors in San Luis Obispo, I've heard the same story from every one of them. So, for example, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor Tim Thule, really good guy, I don't get fed by him anymore. Mike Sparrow, God Bay Christian Fellowship, I don't get fed by him anymore. Tom O'Leary, really great guy, I don't get fed by him anymore. And I'm confident they've heard stories of people saying that about me. All right, Pastor Ryan, or really, he's got a weird haircut, but I don't really get fed by my name. But, but the point of the matter is, the point of the matter is, is that, so, so either all of these guys really are not faithfully preaching the gospel, or maybe, maybe, there's a system that's underlying all of this that's breaking. And the system is setting up for failure every time that says, let's focus on the preacher, let's focus on his giftings, let's see him as a celebrity, as the master teacher, master communicator, that's the purveyor of information to me. And when he fails you, let me just say this. If you do this to me, I will fail you. I will let you down. And when I do, what happens is this process that I would say is disenchantment. You will go from a status of like enchantment. I love this church. This is awesome. So happy to be here. Excited to be part of what God's doing. To a process of degradation towards disenchantment. I'm not really happy being here anymore. I'm not really being fed anymore. I'm not learning anymore. And what may actually be happening, what may actually be beneath the surface of all of this is a sense that somewhere along the line there was a Overfocus upon the messenger, and somewhere along the line, the message itself had gotten convoluted or lost 
in the context of disenchantment. Is that making sense? Let's move on to the next one. Number four, treat scripture like a hobby of facts, info, data to be studied. So there's a lot of people like this. They treat the Bible like a hobby. It's like interesting facts. Does the Bible contain interesting facts and data? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Bible is a very, very fascinating book. There is a lot of important and very interesting content. So I think sometimes people can look at the Bible and the Bible teacher, sorry, uh, that was loud, the Bible teacher as his job is to give me a bunch of interesting facts and data and interesting stats. And if for some reason that becomes an idol, if I can put it that way, over the real genuine focus of the gospel itself, the good news, then Bible study will become boring because you're not getting the interesting facts and data and information or trivia that is, uh, makes you happy. So lastly is this. Uh, we can have a critical spirit. This means that we have this mentality of just like criticize everything. And it's possible. I mean, look, out of all of these, I relate to this the most. All right? I, I'm, we had a competition of like criticalness. I'll, I'll win. The point is, is that this, this is, and I'm not I'm saying this like I'm, I'm proud of this. Like this is the worst part of me. Like I'm a critical guy. Part of me is just, I'm prone to see things that are broken and messed up and ruined. It's something that I have to constantly be aware of and fight against and resist and re-give to Jesus for his healing and his uh, transformation over my life. But if an idea of just constantly being critical of everything, then we will not hear maybe what God wants to speak to us. Lastly, I'm going to finish with this last slide and I'm done. Is, what are some helps to receiving the gospel? Number one, uh, pray for the one who talks or communicates. I think, I think honestly, like, like and, and I would totally ask this of you guys, like, like pray for me. I want to do a better job. If, I, if there's areas in which, like, I could be doing better, I'm going to do better. I'm always learning. I'm always trying to focus and study and do better. There's areas, I have blind spots. We all have blind spots. Um, I, I, I pray for the success of all of the pastors in San Luis Obispo. I want Tim Thule to have such a rich, vibrant ministry at Grace Church. I want Tom O'Leary to preach Jesus in such boldness and clarity that Mount Brick goes crazy with people. I want to see God's blessing on the Central Coast amidst all of these churches. Pray for the pastors, the leaders, the elders, the speakers, the communicators, whoever they may be. Pray that God would help them to better communicate the whole counsel of God, the gospel, Jesus. Secondly, uh, come with an open, expectant, softened heart to receive. Think about this. Come on Sundays or whenever you gather and say, Jesus, help my heart to be open. Help me to learn to receive anything that you have to speak to me. I want to catch and hear and receive Jesus in a revelation of you in ways I could never seen before. Thirdly, pray that God may give you eyes to see. Ask God, Jesus, help me to have eyes to see, ears to hear those things that you have to speak. So finally, as we wrap this up, I want to just ask a question. I'll actually have the worst of you come on up and we'll respond uh, in, in closing to think about this. Um, what type of preparation do you go through to, to receive God's word? What type of preparation do you go through? How do you prepare? What what process do you go through to ask God to speak to you? I think a lot of times we, we, we come, especially on a large gathering like a Sunday morning, uh, kind of haphazardly and uh, not super expectant for God to meet us. And so what, what we get is not a lot sometimes. And what we walk away with sometimes might be even more of a criticalness. And, and yet Jesus was preached loudly and clearly, yet, yet we missed it because others are getting saved. Others are having their hearts melted. 
Others are having their minds blown by the greatness and the beauty and the power of Jesus. But you may be walking away being like, I don't, I don't like this. I'm not getting fed. I'm not growing. And again, it may not just be here. It might just be any, any other church or any other gathering. So ask God, what are ways in which the Holy Spirit may begin to speak to you in a new way? So I want to pray for us that we as a community, why don't we all stand and uh, take a posture of openness to God, whatever that looks like for you, whether it be just, you know, you raising your hands up to God is in a fashion like a child saying, God, I need you. But I want to pray for us, and then let's, let's respond to God. The response is the, the proper way of giving back to God his due. His revelation came forth today. We saw images and pictures and elements of the beauty and the greatness of Jesus, the gospel of God's love, that he loves you in spite of you. He loves you. No matter how broken you are, no matter how rebellious you have been, no matter what type of defilement you may have encountered in this past week, this past 24 hours, he loves you. And that Jesus shed his blood to wash and cleanse you and make you a brand new person. This is the God we come before. So let's just pray. Let's ask God. I'll pray over us. Let's have a posture that's open to the Holy Spirit to speak as we respond. So God, as we come to you right now, we open our hearts to you and just say, please, God, melt anything, God, in us that is not of you. Uh, Defilement, brokenness, bitterness, criticalness. God, all these things that actually uh, bring a sense of soiling to our soul. We lay at your feet, Jesus. We want to be set free. We want to be made new. So we receive today, Jesus, from you the gift of your incredible grace, your favor, your love. So as we sing, as we respond, um, please feel free to partake of the communion, either in the front or in the back. It's a way of remembering uh, by way of bread and cup that we have a God that loves us. He was broken for us. And we'll have some people in the front also that would love to pray for you. I'll be up in the front. would love to pray for you. Anybody, anything you're going through in this life or you just need a touch from God's presence to give you new life. I want to pray for that as well. No matter who you are, come forward. We'd love to pray with you. There's some rugs in the front if you just want to get before God and worship Him and respond to Him. But let's respond now.